Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Dear Lord God, we thank you that we are your church, we are your people, and we can't be stopped. Lord, we're not going anywhere. But ultimately, Lord, furthermore, what we expect to see, what we desire to see, what we are assured of seeing is your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is within us, within the sphere of our lives as your people. And so help us, Lord, we pray. Help us to be a healthy church. And as we meditate on your word today, Lord, I pray that you would just lead and guide us, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you'd open the eyes of our understanding to really grasp your will for us, Lord. Strengthen us in you, Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, In Ephesians 4, Pastor Rob referenced some verses in particular last week. Looking at verse 15, it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it's verse 16 that really is my focus. Because in verse 16 we see the Apostle Paul Draw on that example, that illustration, that metaphor of the church being a body. This is a very significant and and a very um, potent metaphor in Paul's mind. This isn't the only time that he likens the church to being a body. We see that also in 1 Corinthians 12. And he elaborates all the more fully on that. And so he recognizes that we are a body and that we are an interconnected body. We're an interconnected body, joined and held together. And not only are we an interconnected body, but we are a body that is supposed to function properly based on an external reference. It's not just function properly in our own eyes. So, anyone can claim to be the king of Zamunda. Coming to America, remember that? King of Zamunda. But what evidence is there, what external reference is there to verify that that is true? Rose petals. 
Well, for that king of Zamunda, where's our rose petals? Yeah? What's our reference? You see, we are supposed to function properly. And we cannot understand or ascertain the understanding of what properly is just by our own creative thinking, our own ingenuity. We need to be told by the one who formed the body as to what properly looks like. But this we do know, that when we are functioning properly, there will be growth. There will be growth because the body will grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so, what is properly? Now, the way we function as a body is deeply affected by our understanding of who we are. The way we function is deeply affected by our understanding of who we are. If we don't know who we are, we're not going to function properly. Amen? I'll give you an example. I watched a film the other day, and on the film it was talking about people who go on the internet and they portray themselves as someone else in order to attract a partner. The film's called Catfish. And so you've got this individual who will go on the internet and they will put up, they will get pictures from like models or whatever, and then they will put it up and they will pretend it's them. And they'll they give themselves a name. And then this, this one individual created a whole world of fake profiles on Facebook. This whole community of people that were created by them out of their own mind to try and substantiate this central figure that they were purporting to be. Fraud. Fake. Now, that's not even the main part. I mean, you would say that's kind of dysfunctional, right? Somebody is going on and interacting with others to the point where they even developed a relationship initially online with an individual based on this false persona. You would say that person had an identity crisis, right? They're trying to carry out a relationship as someone that they're not. They didn't really have a clear sense of who they are, and so because of that, they began behaving dysfunctionally. That's not even the real example that I'm giving you. In this film, there was an individual who went through this process of, of presenting themselves to be someone. And they presented themselves to be this young man. And as they presented themselves to be this young man, somebody connected with their profile. And then they began to have this kind of relationship. And the guys who made the film, they kind of like, they have a series now, I think. And the whole idea is that they go around looking at these incidences of people who are developing online relationships through social media, and then they try and uncover whether or not these people are real, or is it just more fraudery, more, more fakery. And so they started to film this person who connected with this 
young man on Facebook and was building a relationship. And so they kind of came in alongside them and said, look, we want to help you guys meet and, you know, see what comes of this. And, and this is what our filming's all about. And so two twos, they start doing some research. And they find out that not, not only is the person who's presented themselves as a young man not who they really say they are, they found out that it's actually a woman. So this girl has started to develop a relationship online with this person behind this profile, and they think it's this, and it's always some good-looking, flawless individual, so on, but the person that they were building a relationship was actually a woman. Long story short, they meet. When they meet, she realizes not only was this person not the man that she fought. She finds out that this person is a woman who is now attempting to live as a man. I know you're confused. you were confused a long time, but I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I'm just going to keep, just watch the video back and try to work it out. So she's met this individual who was a woman now living as a man, like transvestite type, men's clothes, men's haircut and everything. And furthermore, was going to proceed to, to, to um, experience a transgender operation in order to physically be changed from a woman to a man. You're like, that's deep. That's, that's too much. But it's true. It's real. If you talk about identity crisis, when you talk about somebody not knowing who they are, all of the dysfunctional behavior just became very apparent as to why it was happening. For some of us in the church, we're in that place. We have an identity crisis. And as a result, we are dysfunctional because we don't know who we are. The way we function is deeply affected by our understanding of who we are. We are a body. And over the years, the church, the early church fathers, those, those, those individuals, those leaders who were the successors to the apostles, so you had the, 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 the era of the apostles, the apostolic era, era Peter, um, Paul, and all of the other apostles that were there serving, the, the, the special sent messages, and that era was an era that ended with the last apostle. So I believe that the apostle John was the last apostle to die. 
even after they tried to boil him in oil on Patmos and he couldn't dead. He was the last to die and with him dying, that was the end of the apostolic era. There are no apostles like those. There will never ever be apostles like those ever again. It doesn't matter who calls themselves apostle, whatever. They are not on that level. Now some people still use the term apostle with a small a, being somebody who is a messenger sent to a people to bring the word of God. I don't have a problem with that. As long as people don't begin to get misguided and think that they are able to speak with the authority of scripture of their own imagination. Which is really what it comes down to. Nobody has that authority. And yet the early church fathers recognized this and one of the things we must consider as we look at the Bible, and, and you know, you're there, you're reading your Bible, you're going through your Bible, one of the things that's going to help you to appreciate your Bible well is recognizing the doctrine of progressive revelation. That throughout the ages, God revealed himself progressively. And so the people at the beginning didn't have a full, and you read the beginning of the Bible and you read the early ages of the Bible, you recognize that the people didn't have a full understanding of God, even in the way that we do now, because we're at this end of the time continuum, looking back, and, they, and you know they say that, what is it? Um, hindsight is perfect. Everything looks, everything looks 2020 in hindsight. We're able to look back on hindsight and see how God has progressively revealed himself and have a clearer and fuller picture. And so as the apostles died and the early church fathers were getting a clearer understanding and clearer revelation of just what God has been doing in establishing the people for himself, they began to look at the text of Scripture and define some central truths. They affirm the fact that the church is a body. But is the church many bodies? So you have church in Brockley, you have a church in New Cross, you have a church in Peckham, you have a, a church in Camden, you have, and does that mean that we are many bodies? No. You're in Ephesians 4, hopefully. If you want to just back up to the top of Ephesians 4, we'll understand that there is one church, one universal church. Therefore a prisoner, sorry, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't need to try and create unity. We are united by the Spirit and simply have to maintain that unity. Verse 4, there is one body. How many? One body. 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word was repeated time and time again in that very short section? You think that God's trying to tell us something? Now, he is speaking to Christians. And he's saying, look, there is one body. And you see, the Apostle Paul, throughout Ephesians, when he speaks of the church, he primarily and repeatedly speaks of the church universal. Unlike in other of his epistles, where he speaks of local church and local... He, his emphasis in Ephesians is God's new society. God's new race. Now, I say that bearing in mind the fact that there are only two races on the planet. You're like, what do you mean two races? Look how many different people groups there are and racism and all these problems. And There's only two races. Any guesses what they are? Well, you have the human race, but there's another. Thank you, bro. Believers. Yeah. Believers. We are aliens. We are strangers. We're passing through as pilgrims. We are not of this world. We say that. But when we think about the practical ramifications, we find it hard to distinguish ourselves from the human race. The Bible says we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so you have the human race and you have Christians. And we share much in common with the human race. But there is also much that we have that's different and distinct. On a deeper level. And so despite all of the differences, different locations different cultures, different colors, different histories and different heritages, all those in Christ are one. One universal church. The second thing that the early church fathers highlighted was the fact that the church is holy. The church is holy. If you want to go to Ephesians 1, Verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That we should be holy and before him. So, God, according to his work of election, chose us as his people, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. 
that we should be holy. God's people are holy. Now, holiness works on two levels. It works in terms of our status, and it is then supposed to work in terms of our state. I'll say that again. Our status and our state. According to our status, we have been made holy by God through Christ Jesus. We are holy. In fact, one of the terms used to describe Christians, which you see here in chapter 1, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints. That word basically means set apart or holy, to the holy. So Paul's writing to those who are in Christ and recognize as being saints. You are holy. You are a saint. You don't have to wait a hundred and odd years for the church to kind of look back on your life and say, yeah, you know what? No dirt has come out of the closet. No skeletons. Yeah, that person was really holy, you know, and so rubber stamp, canonized. K is holy. Holy Mother Camille. <laughs> we already done know that Camille's holy. You are holy. Now, I want you to think about that and think about what that means to you for a moment. What does it mean to you that you are holy, that God sees you and he sees you as holy? For some of us, our first thought is, I don't, I don't deserve that kind of, I, I don't deserve that kind of recognition. For some of us, I don't even feel holy. Some of us might want to say, look, you know what? If God knew me the way that I knew me, the way that I know me, I wouldn't call me holy. But obviously God knows you. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you've submitted to his lordship, he is your lord and saviour. and you genuinely bear the marks of a Christian, then you can be confident that you are holy, not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is, and because you've been clothed, you've been robed in his righteousness. So that is our status. And as a result, our state from day to day is that we are to walk in holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Holy is a very seemingly simple four-letter word. <laughs> and yet, it has such a depth of meaning, we could spend one service just unpacking the meaning of holy. 
It means to be separate. It means to be unique. It means to be undefiled or pure. I mean, there is so much wealth of meaning in this one word. All of it applies to us. And the reason that God tells us to be holy is because it's a response to the work that he's already done in us. It's the natural byproduct of the work that he's already done in us. And so the church is holy. We also recognize, according to the definition of the church fathers, that, you know what? The church is defined by the teaching of the apostles. It's what they call the apostolic church. Now, I know that there are other church denominations and groups today that take the name apostolic as being part of their identity. There is even a church group today that take the name apostolic as part of their identity. And yet, in one of the fundamental teachings of Scripture, they're in error. So when it comes to the issue of the Trinity, the apostolic church is known to be oneness or Jesus only. When I talk about apostolic, I'm not talking about apostolic in modern terms. I'm not talking about oneness or Jesus only. I'm talking about according to the teachings of the original apostles. If a church is truly a church, then they will truly hold to the teachings of the apostles. We see this in chapter 2 of Ephesians. As you're there, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, Any gathering of people that want to identify themselves as a church, if they are not recognizing the universal church, that there are other Christians apart from themselves, that the church is holy, and that we are established on the teaching of the apostles, then they're not a true church. So you have some churches, for example, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. also known as the Mormons. Now, they teach that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. That ain't apostolic teaching. It don't matter how they want to call themselves a church. They're not part of the church because they don't hold to apostolic doctrine. There are many other groups who will call themselves a church. But from they're not holding to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, we are not to regard them as part of the church. We are not to regard them as the church. And you know what? I feel like it's so necessary that we hear this stuff because in our day and age, teaching is so undefined, teaching becomes so wishy-washy, teaching becomes so man-centered and all about success that these kind of distinctives are no longer clear. So people don't understand that Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. They're a sect. 
the central doctrines that they hold to were declared anathema by the, the early church fathers hundreds of years ago. They say that Jesus is not God, that he is a God. Now we understand that there is only one God. You cannot have a God and truly recognize the one true God. God said, you will have no other gods before or beside me. First commandment, I'm number one. So it's important, as much as it might be uncomfortable. So we recognize these things to be characteristics and hallmarks of the universal church. Of the universal church. But the church is more than just a all over the world, all over the globe experience. And we see that from scripture. So in as much as Paul speaks about the universal church. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.5. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.15. We, we recognize the church, which means ecclesia, the called out ones, called out and gathered, is universal. But the church is manifest or expressed in local corporate congregations. And this is what Paul is communicating to us in Ephesians 4 in our verses. When he draws on the picture of the church being a body, and as he elaborates on that in 1 Corinthians 12, he's showing us, look, there is one universal unit there is one universally constituted organism, not even just an organization. We are a living organism. The life of Christ is in us. We're more than just some corporate entity like BP or whoever, Apple. Or We're not just a corporation. We are more than an organization. We're an organism. There is one universal, but it has many parts. And it has many members. And this is why we see the Apostle Paul banging on this picture of the body. Because it's important that we understand that we are not just a universal corporate entity, but the life of the church is expressed in local committed relationships. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Um, you can start at chapter 1. So, the Apostle Paul, 1 verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. 
So he recognizes that the church had a local expression in Corinth. Um, Go to chapter 4. Verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. But hold on, Paul. I thought you just said that there's one church, one universal church. What are you talking about? Are there other churches out there apart from this one universal church? No. The universal church has clearly defined local congregations, local assemblies of individuals who are in committed relationship. Chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches, plural. And so we appreciate and understand that the Apostle Paul is not contradicting himself. He's not schizophrenic. He's not confused. He is basically expounding the fact that When we understand our identity as Christians, we will recognize ourselves truly as part of the universal church. You know, it's a blessing to travel and in being able to travel to meet with believers and feel like, you know what, I feel like I've known this person all my life. I feel like I've known you all my life. There's a a rapper called... Um, he's called Jay Johnson. He used to go under the name of Jay Silas. And he just had this lyric that I just loved. It always leapt out at me when I heard it. I just meet you, and yet I'm sad to leave you. There's that bond, there's that connection of heart that we find when we gather with the saints wherever. And yet, that is not our normal mode of operation. Our normal mode of operation is that we are to be Locally connected. And so by the time we get to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and there are so many other references, I'm giving you the highlights. We see in verse 4 onwards, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And again, at the end of the chapter, 1st 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, 
administrating and various kinds of tongues. And so we recognize that the church has various expressions. And as we look at his analogy of the body, he's saying, look, there are going to be different parts of the church that function in different ways. That goes for us individually as we gather locally, but that also goes for the fact that, you know, it's, it's not um, hard to see that. You've got certain congregations of believers, certain fellowships of believers that the Lord uses with a certain bias. He uses in a certain way. They, they perform a certain function that is a blessing to the body. And maybe not necessarily uniquely so. So when you consider the body, we have two hands. Just because one aspect is doing the work of a hand and serving the needs of the body, they don't have to be the only ones who are doing that. I'll give you an example. It's been a consideration of mine over the years just as to how the Lord has used Hillsong musically in the body of Christ. Now, regardless of your taste or whatever, your opinion, the fact of the matter is we have to recognize that God has used them with regards to bringing forth songs of praise and thanksgiving and worship unto God that people find accessible and that resonate with the hearts of the believers all over the world. The Lord's gifted and graced them, not only with songs, but also with the organization to get it out there. They're a gift to the body. We praise God for the way in which he uses them in that way and other churches in other ways. And yet, our differences are not supposed to divide us, but to cause us to rejoice. Cause us to rejoice as we celebrate our diversity and yet stand together as one in unity. Amen? So, there is a church universal, and yet there is a church local. <coughs> Next week, we'll talk about what does it mean to be part of the church individually. But I'm going to finish today by giving you four things that are supposed to define a local legitimate church or a legitimate local church. Because we all know that anyone can just put a sign over the door of a shop and say that they're a church, right? I mean, it's not just that anyone can, but people do. And so how are we to appreciate or understand that just because a gathering is, is held in a building like this, that, what, that makes it a church? Is that a local church? Because they meet in a church building, quote, unquote. I mean, you go down Brixton to that big church building in the middle of the road there, St. Matthew's, and go to some of the gatherings that they have there on Friday night and Saturday night. You won't find church happening there. 
what they call it, mass and the crypt. And, and you think it sounds like church gathering. I'm going to go and get some fellowship Friday night. That's going to be a different kind of fellowship that you get in there. There ain't going to be Christian fellowship. Trust me. DJ ain't playing no Hillsong in there Friday night and Saturday night. But they're in a church building. They even have Christian-type names for their gathering. Mass. The crypt. An extreme example. But there are many that are a lot closer to home that call themselves churches. And even ought to cause us to say, what, what defines us as a legitimate church? I mean, just because you go in 10 years and blah, blah, like, what? Consider this. One of the things primarily that is to define a local church is the preached word of God. The preached word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 going into chapter 4. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Obviously, when you read man there, it's person, it's a generic human, yeah? Going in now, chapter 4, 2 Timothy I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now you think I'm trying to be dramatic. That's how it's written in the original, with that kind of emphasis. Preach the word. Because Paul was a Pentecostal, you don't know. <laughs> be ready. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so, in the preceding verses, the apostle he defines the fact that Scripture is, is God's word, breathed out by God. It's his holy word. Preach it. If you're in a place where people are not preaching the word, then they are not fulfilling the primary definition of the local church. You know, community groups are wonderful. and It's great that we're able to come around and have a discussion. But the will of God is not determined by debate. It's not determined by consensus. God's will is his word. Now, obviously, there are some areas of scripture that we need to kind of take our time over. And we, we, we study theology in community. No individual, as it says in 2 Peter, no prophecies of private interpretation. So I'm not just going to run with my revelation from the throne and say this is what the word means. But the word says what it says. And we have a history of understanding that helps us to understand what it means. And it is this that we are to preach. And we are to be gracious and humble in those areas that are less than clear. Especially as they relate to non-essential areas of scripture. 
preach the word. Also, we recognize that the local expression of the church is defined by the fact that they participate in the ordinances or sacraments. Now again, you feel like, that sounds like one of them religious terms that I hear in some of them places that I don't even really care to frequent. Sacraments. Whoa. I use the term sacraments or ordinances. And it's basically those two sacred institutions that the Lord Jesus himself passed on to us. Anyone know what the the two of them are? Baptism and communion. So in Matthew 28, we see right there at the end, closing verses known as the Great Commission, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul In verse 23, speaks of communion. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's recognizing that, look, this comes straight from Jesus personally. This isn't just something that I kind of suggested that should be done to help kind of, co- you know, great cohesion. This is from Jesus. Let's observe it and observe it properly. Baptism and communion. And we recognize that as we get on to the next, well, the next but one, that there are implications. Just hold those two things in mind. Let me just put it like that. Baptism and communion. Hold those two things in mind. Because only people who are in the church are supposed to participate of those ordinances. They are visible, practical expressions of a genuine, invisible work of God in the heart. And they affirm our faith and are a testimony to others as we participate in them. And so the purity of their meaning must be preserved by protecting them from abuse, abnormal use. So think about that as we come to the last one in a moment. So we had the word, we had the ordinances, baptism and communion. Also, a local church will be defined by having leadership. If you're taking notes, you can note Acts 20, 28. But also consider 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we've, we've just been through 1 Timothy. And we see how the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, look, appoint elders. Don't be hasty as you do so. Prove them first. Make sure that they demonstrate all the characteristics of a mature Christian. 
But they're supposed to be elders. They're supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be deacons. Providing structure and guidance and direction for the church. A church, a local church, without appointed leaders is not a true local church. This is what the Bible shows us. So if I just get together with my brethren every Friday night and, you know, we chop it up, we get into the Word, does that now make us a church? We're there, we're breaking, breaking bread like, you know, we're going into the Scriptures, having a great Bible study. Now, you may be a part of the church universal, but you're dysfunctional because you are not connected under leadership. The final mark, church discipline. Church discipline is supposed to be one of the things that defines a true local church. If church discipline is not happening, then it's either because it's not a true church or it's a dysfunctional church. Matthew chapter 18. Here in Matthew chapter 18, we see the second occasion that the word church is used. The second occasion that the word church is used, and it's used by Jesus. And it's used before the church even came into existence. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus here is speaking prophetically. And in this section, starting at verse 15, he speaks about the course of correction that is supposed to take place when there are relational issues amongst those who believe. I'll read it because it will have some spin-off benefits as we review it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Second time this word is used, being used prophetically by Jesus. The first time was two chapters before, in chapter 16, when Jesus again spoke prophetically about his called out people, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So in his mind, he clearly had the view of there being a, a corporate body of people set apart by him, for him, that would have local expressions. How do we know this? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So I've got an issue with someone, and I've brought two or three witnesses, and they're still not hearing me. And then, as a, you know, we're Christians. Okay, so let's bring it before the church. Well, which part of the universal church are we going to bring it before? Let's just go and find some other Christian. Like, that's nonsense. 
Evidently, Jesus has in view a local community who are in committed relationship one with another, ongoing committed relationship. And he goes on to say, with this in mind, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I want you to understand the context of those last three verses, because we quote those verses and we quote them out of context. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I bind that spirit of depression. That ain't what the context is talking about. It's talking about discipline. It's talking about relational issues. I used to do that until somebody drew my attention to the context. And it was hard. I struggled. I was like, what do you mean I can't bind demons? Fam, I'm an A-star binder. You don't understand. Listen. It messed me up. I'm not even joking. Am I lying, Pastor P? Because that's all that that the verse meant to me. And then the next verse, oh my gosh. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, (laughs) touching anything, you know that one there, yeah? It will be done, so let's agree for that Mercedes, brother. Let's, let's come in agreement, because that's all it meant to me. You know what, brother, what that job. Let's come in agreement over that job, because it shall be according to our word. It's talking about God backing church discipline. When the course of correction has been followed through properly, it says the decision that you make is backed by heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's not what you heard. (laughs) Sorry, busting bubbles today. It's not what you heard. Again, it's talking about the issue of church discipline. And we see this elaborated on in the other section of scripture that speaks thoroughly. Um, The Apostle Paul speaks about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. And he's talking about the fact that as a local community of Christians in committed relationship, you bear Christ's name to the world. People will look at you and think of Jesus. And when they look at you and think of Jesus, they ain't supposed to look at you and see all kinds of madness and filthiness and and craziness going on under his name. And think that that's what Jesus is about. So Jesus is just, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about somebody who was fornicating with a stepmother. Peak. Fornicating with their stepmother. Now we say, wow, man, that's deep. That's, that's, yeah, they was going on with some extreme things in 1 Corinthians 5. But when Paul addresses the issue, he doesn't just 
talk about the extremes, oh, these extremes ought not to be named among you. Not at all. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, sorry, this is in 1 Corinthians 5, I just leapt over there. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't keep company with them. Don't associate with them. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I'm not talking about the non-Christians who behave like that because they're going to behave like that, right? But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who bears the name of Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And it don't stop there. Or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, like a railing person, drunkard or swindler. No, not even to eat with such a one. In that culture and in that time and in that day, to sit down and eat with someone was an endorsement. It was, a, it was an affirmation of your committed relationship to them. Don't even eat with them. Now that sounds cold, but the aim is that it would be restorative. The aim is that the person would feel the disconnect and the isolation and in doing so be brought to a place of repentance. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, says Paul? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Don't judge me, you know. Only God knows my heart, you know. Don't judge me. Read your Bible. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So look, as a community, we are to be defined by these things. As an expression of being a true local church. We recognize that there is one universal church that is holy, that is set apart. There's one church. There aren't many different, like, versions. There aren't many remixes. There's just one. We're holy. We're set apart. According to an apostle's teaching, we gather around the preached word of Christ. We participate in the sacraments, the ordinances, as Jesus instructed There is appointed leadership, not merely self-appointed leadership. (laughs) There's a difference. Paul said to Timothy, appoint elders, but lay hands on no one suddenly. There's supposed to be a succession of Christian elders appointing Christian elders. Someone self-appointed is illegitimate. Drop out of college and be like, boy, what am I going to do? Let me start a church. University went south, didn't really happen for me, and I need to do something. I can make a change, you know. There's some people think like that. A friend of mine finished university, and he said, you know what, I'm going to go into the ministry. His brother said, yeah, you're going to make some money now. 
Obviously, his brother wasn't a Christian. Hmm. But there is appointed leadership and that the church exercises discipline. And these seven things become seven marks of a legitimate church. Now, when you think through them and you consider where we're at, are there any of those in any way that trouble you? Well, I trust not. Because God is at work in us. And for all of our flaws and failings, according to the standard of his word, we're recognized as being legitimate. And we praise God for that. It's evident that his grace is is upon us. And as we mature and as we grow in fruitfulness, and as we function properly, as we saw in Ephesians 4.16, we are going to not only, you know, be marked by these things, but we are going to outwork these things practically. So there will be the preaching of the word, and people will be getting baptized as they are affirmed to genuinely be Christians. And people will be invited to participate in communion as their lives bear the marks and the fruit of being a Christian and the appointed leadership will exercise discipline even if it means saying to someone, look, you know what? Your character has consistently been questionable. There is such a distinct lack of fruit in your life where we're saying, look, don't don't, don't come to the communion table. Because the fruit in your life or the lack of fruit in your life suggests that we're not even really sure if you're a Christian, fam. Now, we talked about that last week at community group. If you weren't there, you missed out. When we get into 1 John later on in the year, we'll revisit it. What are the marks of, what are the indicators that someone is truly a Christian? Because, you know, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. This kind of talk makes us feel a bit uncomfortable, right? It's a bit edgy. That's good. It's meant to. It's meant to. Because if we don't know the basis upon which we're saved, then we ought to be concerned. If we don't understand that our salvation is not of ourselves and of our works, but it's based on faith in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf as our substitute, qualifying us for what we could not be qualified for, then we're we're very right to be concerned. But when we've truly been impacted by the gospel, truly, and we appreciate the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf, we realize that, you know what, whatever we're lacking... From we've got faith in the risen Lord who died on our behalf, then you know what? We're good. We're in the family. 
and we have received the resource, the infinite resource to walk in God's way and be holy, who is his Holy Spirit. And so, as we grow and we mature as a church, there has to be a continual outworking of these things among us. And there are certain changes that we might make in order to make it more defined and more clear. But having heard this, you will understand the basis upon which those changes are made. And the basis upon which we are endeavoring to promote maturity and growth. And so, as we pray, I ask the team to return for the final song. Just take a moment to just consider. Firstly, are you part of the church, genuinely? Secondly, are you prepared to submit to what scripture lays out as being the standard definition of what a true local church looks like? Are you prepared to submit to that or have you got beef with that? If you've got beef with that, we can talk. But what I'd ask you to do is actually go to your Bible first and bring me an argument from Scripture. Bring us an argument from Scripture. Fundamentally, we are setting our stall out. This is what we're about. We say it all the time, you know what, we're not begging friends. And so if you're not about this, and this was never clear to you before, you now know. Quite frankly, as much as we want everyone to be here and enjoy the, the, the richness of God's purpose being outworked, we want everyone to be on the same page. And if this ain't for you, we ain't going to hold it against you. But please know, we ain't trying to manipulate anyone into staying here against their will. You don't have to be here. Hard talk. This is 2013. We're moving forward. We're not going backwards. Shall we stand? Calvin said, for the body of the church to cohere well, to gel and cement well, it must be bound together with discipline as with sinews. For the body of the church to, to cement well, it must be bound together with discipline as with sinews. Know this, that as we continue in God's will and purpose as a local church, we cannot be stopped.
We ain't going nowhere. Nowhere but forward. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness toward us, Lord, in allowing us to be considered a part of your people. Lord, I pray for all of those today, Lord, who have um, been challenged to their core and are somewhat concerned with as whether or not they are actually truly a part of your church. I thank you, Lord, that you don't put hurdles in anyone's way. Furthermore, you made the way. You made the way clear. You made the way where there was no way. You sent Christ. And by means of his sacrifice, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if an individual believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, that he was sacrificed for their sin and raised again unto the newness of life, that person shall be saved. And a part of your family, the church. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands afresh and new and ask, Lord, that with great clarity there would be definition that we would be like one of those bodybuilders that just work day and night on defining their ripped physique, every muscle standing, that we would be that as a church, Lord, that we would be a healthy church by your definition and that these marks would be evident and visible among us, Lord. Have your way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.